Good to see you all. And uh, we're going to continue this morning uh, in the Word of God. And um, as you can see, the title I have this morning is in the form of a question Is it over your head or under his feet? Is it over your head or under his feet? You remember last week we looked at that beautiful miracle of Jesus when he healed the 5,000, although it was more than 5,000, but we refer to it as the healing, uh, sorry, the feeding of the 5,000. And um, we saw at the end of that that the crowd were so taken up with Jesus, they wanted to take him and make him king. In other words, they saw that he was the Messiah the one that was promised all through the scriptures by the prophets. And one of the things that they believed the scriptures were teaching about the Messiah is that he would deliver them from their oppressors. Well, Rome was their oppressors at that time. And so they were really wanting to take him then. This is their moment. They were convinced now's the time. Let's take him, make him king and overthrow the yoke of Rome once and for all. Uh, but Jesus, of course, had other ideas. And the amazing thing is that if you've got a crowd of 10, 15, 20,000 people who have got their mind set on one thing, that's a very dangerous situation to be in. But Jesus was in perfect control. Perfect control. We, we, we read that he did two things. Number one, he told the disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of the lake. And then he sent the crowd away. He had authority in that situation, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. Then he went up into the mountain and he prayed. So that's where we're going to pick up the story uh, this week. It says, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and went over the sea towards Capernaum. Now, as I've said, the Jews wanted to go from recognizing Jesus as prophet to making him the king. Many of you will know that in Israel, there were three important offices that had to do with national leadership and direction. That was prophet, priest, and king. Okay, the prophet brought the word of God. Often when the people of Israel were going in the wrong direction, the prophet would bring them back or he would give them a word of encouragement, a word of even prediction. So the prophet brought the word of God and uh, the priest, of course, brought the people to, to God through the sacrificial system. They brought their lamb to the, the priest and he offered it on their behalf and, and they, they were uh, forgiven, they were cleansed, they were blessed and so on. So the priest stood between them and God. And then the king, of course, was the, the, the form of government. It was a, a monarchy that governed Israel. And uh, what we find in the scriptures is that no one person could occupy all of those three positions. Anyone could be a prophet. Didn't matter what tribe they came from, as long as God called them and gave them his word and they were, they were speaking on his behalf, they could be a prophet. But only those of the tribe of Levi could become priests and the kings came from the tribe of Judah. And yet Jesus was prophet priest and king. That's very clear. And they recognized him as prophet. Um, he brought the word of God to them. 
they were just incredibly impressed with his teaching. They said, no man ever taught like this man. He taught with authority. He taught in the name of God. And, and he's come from God to bring us the word of God. They accepted him as prophet. But they wanted to go from prophet to king. You see? And they missed out this important office of priest, which is what they needed. They thought they needed, or this, what they wanted, was a king who would lead them into freedom and liberty from Rome, but they needed a priest. They needed a saviour first. They needed, and Jesus, of course, was both the offering and the priest that offered the sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God and he's the, the priest, that, um, a great high priest. But they did not recognise that. They didn't acknowledge that. They wanted to make him king. But Jesus would not be made king like Saul at the will of the people. God would install him on the throne at the, at the right time. And, and we, we are looking forward to that time when Jesus will be declared king over all the earth. He prayed. He told us to pray rather, didn't he? Thy kingdom come. We're praying for his kingdom to come. We see, you know, just um, uh, as good as governments may try to be and uh, want to be, there is so much weakness and failure in human government and leadership. And uh, we get discouraged and depressed and disillusioned by it. But we're longing for the day when Jesus will come and reign in righteousness. And when you see the mess that's going on in the world, it's getting just more and more crazy. I'm sure you're like me. You pray that prayer. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus and set up your kingdom, your throne over all the earth. And, and here we see in this psalm that... that particular moment being seen in, in um, prophetic foresight. Um, we see in, the, in that psalm that the whole world is kind of, you know, rebelling against God and they're saying God is this and God is that and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. God laughs at them because God is in control and, and it, here's this time when he's going to set his king in authority. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So Jesus will be king and all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. The prince of peace will reign. But he first had to be the priest. He first had to offer himself up for the sins of the people, for our sins, that we might be forgiven and, and, and reconciled to God. And so Jesus had to deal with that situation, and he did deal with it. And so then we're going to read in the next verse that it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. They, 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 they you know, were waiting for Jesus to come. At evening, Jesus, just before the sunset, Jesus sent the disciples across the lake. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Um, maybe, maybe they even were caught up in this, this uh, frenzy of, yes, it's time now for Jesus to be declared the king. They wanted him to be the king. It took them a long time to have a revelation of the cross. We know that, and Peter even tried to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross and was rebuked for that. And so maybe they got caught up in that, or maybe they, they could see or feel that Jesus was in danger and they were trying to help him against the, the will of the crowd. And he just told them, compelled them to get into the boat, go across the lake ahead of him, and then he dealt with the crowd. So 
Here's the thing, and I've mentioned this before, I'm sure, in another message, that he sent them across the lake knowing that they would sail into a storm. The storm came to those who were in the will of God. And we need to think about that because of this theology that, that is being taught today that a good God would not allow us to go into a storm. Well, number one, that's not biblical. In fact, God even sent a storm after Jonah. You know, as I said before, we don't know what's good. We don't know what's good. We think we know what's good, but, but only, I mean, God sent that storm to Jonah and because of that, a whole city repented of their sin and was spared the judgment of God because Jonah ended up going to the city of Nineveh and preaching to that city. Um, Paul said three times he was shipwrecked. And we know one of those times, it was the end of a storm that lasted many days. And as a result of that, they ended up going to an island, was it Malta? that they never planned to go to. And, uh, you know, they were able to minister healing and the word of God. I'm sure many would have come to Christ that would never have heard the gospel otherwise. So sometimes storms come to us in the will of God. Okay, so let's read on. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. Now, probably you've heard preachers say before that storms can quickly come up on uh, the, the Lake of Galilee, very quickly. Um, the, the Lake of Galilee is actually 600 feet below sea level. It's very low, and it's surrounded on both sides of the lake by hills. So it's like in a basin. Okay, so when the sun sets, goes behind the hills, very quickly the temperature drops. And this cool air sweeping across the lake has a tendency to stir it up. And it becomes boisterous and a storm. And then, you know, if you add to that the wind that was coming across from the other side, you've got this situation that we read of here in these couple of verses. So they were working hard, trying to get this boat under control, trying as much as they could to get to the other side. But despite their hard work, the boat was tossed by the waves and they made no progress. Now this happened in the fourth, which is the last watch. There were four watches from six o'clock in the evening to six o'clock in the morning in three hour shifts or watches. So this, this all happened between three o'clock in the morning and Six o'clock in the morning, the last watch, okay? They had been rowing by this time for six to nine hours, trying to get to the other side. And it says that they, in one, one scripture, one gospel account, that they were in the middle of the sea. What's the middle of the sea? Well, we know that actually the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles across in width. So here it says that they were three or four miles. They were right in the middle of the sea and in, in this terrible storm, and of course they were afraid. They were afraid that they were not going to make it, that they were going to sink. And uh, the longer they waited for him to come, the worse it became. It seemed as if he had forgotten them. Now there were two storms in the Gospels. <laughs> the first one, he was asleep in the boat, Jesus. And the second, he was not even there with them. He was absent. 
And, and so that can give the impression that he's not with us in this. He's not with us. And we can be in storms like that where we think, Lord, are you asleep? <laughs> or are you there? Hello, are you there? I like what A.W. Pink says. Omnipotence can afford to wait for it is always sure of success. Omnipotence doesn't panic. Omnipotence means almighty. The storm was mighty, but God is almighty. Amen. And, and, and God's timing is perfect because he's in perfect control, even though it doesn't seem it. It says in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you and therefore he will be exhorted that he may have mercy on you for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Amen. Um, you know, there's a big emphasis in the scripture about the need to couple our faith with patience. We are those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We think faith means that God must act in our time. No, it doesn't. Faith means that God is in control. But patience enables us to endure until God acts on our behalf or gives grace in that situation. Now remember this. He sent them across the lake. He was the one that said, go ahead of me. If you, if you read the other uh, versions of this, um, this, this situation, he said, go ahead. In other words, you go and I will meet you on the other side. So they were in the will of God. And, and they were also in the prayers of Jesus because he was up in the mountain. This is important. Praying. He sent the multitude away. He went up into the mountain. He was praying to his father. And he, they were watched by Jesus. Now this is quite remarkable. Remember this is in the middle of the night. It's dark. They're three or four miles out to sea. There's a storm, but he could see them. So he's not only omnipotent, he is omniscient. He knows all things. He watched them. He says he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Jesus was totally aware. They thought he was absent. They thought he did not understand what was going on and that they were alone in this storm and that they were going to go under. But he, they were in the will of God. He sent them into it. They were in the prayers of Jesus and Jesus was aware of what was going on. He saw them straining on the oil, oars. That word literally means to toil or even to be tortured or tormented or distressed. They were, they were giving everything and, and, and they, were not, they were not getting this boat under control. They were getting out of control. They were distressed, totally exhausted in body and distressed in mind. They became afraid. We become afraid when our perceived needs exceed our perceived resources. So that again, we become afraid when our perceived needs exceed our perceived resources. In other words, when we really believe that God has brought us into a situation and left us deficient without the resources to deal with it. Amen? Then he came to them walking on water. The very thing they feared, the water, the sea, was a pathway for him to come to them. It's often the case. Our need, our trials, 
are the very thing that brings God to us. I think Lindsay was sharing with me a wonderful thought this morning. Without a test, there is no testimony. Without a test, there is no testimony. Amen. The very thing they feared was the thing that brought the power of God to them. The love of God, the goodness of God, the deliverance of God to them. And they had a testimony at the end of that because of the test. So good that is, so true. But they were frightened of him because they thought him to be someone else, a ghost, as you would. People don't walk on water. And so they saw this figure coming towards them and they thought, you know, maybe, maybe, what's that um, angel of death? Um, the Grim Reaper, you know. <laughs> Who is this? Their time's up. <laughs> We're going to die. They thought him to be someone else. Now, this is all about fear, this situation. You can imagine the panic, the fear, the anxiety that gripped these disciples and they thought that Jesus was not with them in this situation. And so they feared. They feared Jesus even because they thought him to be someone else. And that's so sad that, that people fear God because he's been misrepresented and people think that he's someone to be feared and someone who's against them. Someone who's against them. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They ran from God. God ran after them not to crush them. If he crushed them, there'll be no human race. He rushed after them. He pursued them, I should say, to redeem them, to restore them, to to cover their nakedness, to share with them the plan of salvation, to, to, to begin to unfold that plan of redemption. That's the love of God. And yet the greatest lie of the devil is that God is against us. There's, there's a wonderful um, situation in the book of Judges. I, I think it was the parents of Gideon who were visited by an angel and, and they, you know, they offered up this offering on the rock. The angel told them to offer this offering to God on the rock. And the fire came down and consumed. I think it was the, it's either the parents of Gideon or, or, or Samson. I forget which one now. And, and the man, the, 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 you know, the husband said, we're going to die. We're going to die. You know, this is the power of God and God's with us and we're going to die. And his wife said, if, if we were going to die, why would God have received an offering? If God was against us, why, why did he create us in the beginning? If God was against us, why did he send his son to die for us? And yet, you know, a lot of preaching tries to get people to fear God. You say, well, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. Not that kind of fear. Not that kind of fear. That's the fear that brings torment, the Bible says. That's the fear that makes us run from God. There is a reverential fear and awe to stand in awe of God and to love him and respect him for who he is. That's a different kind. That's a, that's a clean fear of God. But, but what some preachers try to create in us, thinking that it, we'll, we'll run to God, well, it may work for a little while, friends. But it's, it, it's ultimately the goodness of God that brings repentance, that draws us near to God. You can't draw near to someone. You can't trust someone you think is going to hurt you. God doesn't want to hurt us. God loves us more than we will ever know. 
and, and yet fear is the, you know, the, the, what is it the Bible says? There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Amen. God, God has not given us a spirit of fear. If there's fear in us, it's not come from God. Some people want you to think that, but God wants you to be afraid and you better, you know, shape up and, 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 and smarten up because God's angry. So, so be afraid and, and do something about it. That's not, that's not how God works. Amen. Fear has torment and, and love is not perfected in fear. And so God wants to give us this incredible revelation of how much he loves us. And there's no need to fear him. No need to fear him. Amen. That's why Paul prayed that our hearts will be strengthened um, and that we would, we would know with all the saints. I love that part. With all the saints. We, we together, as we journey together, we would know the depth and the length and the breadth and the height to know the love of God that passes knowledge. We see it, we hear it in testimonies from each one and we're growing together in our knowledge of the love of God that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the way God works. That's the way God works, friends. Amen. And so we see the very first thing he said to them, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat. Completely changed the situation. Once Jesus assured them, you've got nothing to be afraid of, they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land where they were going. Look at that. Mark adds actually this, that Jesus meant to pass by them as he was walking. <laughs> Jesus hasn't got a sense of humour. You see, he wants to be invited. He waits to be, for us to call upon him. That's faith. Faith reaches out and calls to him in our need. It's not passive. Pace, uh, sorry, faith reaches out to the Lord to invite him into our situation. Once he said to them, do not be afraid, they welcomed him into the boat. And it says they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marvelled. <laughs> as you would be, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. You remember we saw that last week? Jesus asked them all to take up a basket of leftovers to take them into the boat. Why? As a, a reminder that he who had met their greatest need would meet every one of their needs. There's no need to be afraid. There's no need to fear. He loves us. He will care for us. He will do it his way. But it's going to be all right. He's brought us this far by his grace. Amen. When they received him into the boat, the miraculous happened immediately. Remember, they were three to four miles from shore. But this miracle happened immediately. The boat was at the land. No rowing, no, no wind in the south. The wind was against them. And yet they were there. That's, a, that's an absolute miracle. And it happened when they invited Jesus into the boat. Okay. This was another sign in which Jesus showed forth his glory so that we could put our trust in him. Remember, all these signs were just pictures of how God works in us and through us in our situations so that it strengthens our faith and we trust him. The message is this, there are situations in which left to ourselves we would sink or drown. 
but that which is over our head is under his feet. Amen. Yeah, maybe, maybe even in your situation today, you might think you're sinking, you know, um, maybe because of your circumstances, maybe because of your finances, maybe because of, of uh, the opposition the enemy is bringing against you. You know, somebody was just saying this morning, there are those times when the devil throws everything. It's like not one thing, but it's a lot of things. And it just seems to overwhelm us and like we're going under, like we're sinking. And we might shout out, I'm sinking, I'm sinking, which reminds me of that, that um, YouTube clip. <laughs> I'm sure you've all seen it, of this German Coast Guard that was on his first day at work. Uh, and, and he received a mayday call. Mayday, mayday, we are sinking, we are sinking. And he said, what are you thinking about? <laughs> well, well, thank God when we say, Lord, we say, well, I'm sinking, I'm sinking. He's not confused about what we're saying. He knows exactly what we think, amen. And, and, and uh, so the doctrine is this that what seems to be over our head is actually under his feet. He has put all things, all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Now, I looked up that word all. In the Greek, it's the word pas. Do you know what it means? All. <laughs> that was a surprise. All without exception. All things. All the elements, including the physical works of creation, are under his feet. That's comforting to know. Let me read something to you. I'm taking a, an excerpt out of one of my sermons, the first one I did in Hebrews. Um, and, and it says this. This is what I said, shared at that time. The earth revolves in its own orbit around the sun, making the long elliptical circuit of 600 million miles every year which means we are traveling at 90, 19 miles per second and you multiply that by 60 that's per minute by 60 again that's per hour let me know the figure get your calculators out thank god the earth never stops can you imagine a car going at that speed then then stopping everything would just be crunched. It just keeps going. The nine major planets in our solar system range in distance from the sun from 36 million to 3 trillion 6,664 billion miles, yet each moves around the sun in exact precision with orbits ranging from 88 days for Mercury to 248 days for Pluto. And the sun is only one minor sun, a star, sorry, in the 100 billion orbs which comprise our Milky Way galaxy, not even the universe. You know, once you start talking like that, I just kind of think, I can't comprehend all this. It's just way, but, but the point is this, the Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power. You think he hasn't got your life in control? <laughs> My life in control? He upholds all things by the word of his power. God has put all things under his feet. Everything on this planet, or the elements, or the, or the uh, physical works and so on of creation are under him. 
but the whole universe, he upholds it all by the word of his power. Earthly kings, rulers and nations. You know, we're looking at what's happening in the world today and, and some of the rulers we, we haven't got a lot of confidence in, to be honest. We wonder whether they should be there when they can cause so much trouble and so much havoc and, and we wonder what's going to happen. We don't need to worry about that. It's all under his control. In fact, he tells us what's going to happen. We don't have to fight against the one world government. We know it's coming. We know Antichrist will step on the... We know it's all a part of God's plan to bring everything to its climactic conclusion. It's all under his power. He lifts one up, another down. He lifts up a superpower. And maybe they're there for a hundred years or so, but then they start to decline. And we see they're starting to decline. And another one's coming up and we can get fearful. But it's all under his control. He's brought all things under his feet. God's angels are under his control, serving the church. What are they, says Hebrews? But ministering spirits sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. You know, angels have ministered to me and to you probably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and we haven't even realized it. They're there, the servants of God, watching over us, even the fallen angels. All the principalities and powers of darkness are under his control. He sets the limit. He says, thus far, no further. Amen. It's all under his feet. That's the doctrine. What we think sometimes, if we just get our eyes off him, we look at the storm, we think, yeah, I'm sinking, I'm sinking. We're going under, this planet's going under. God's in control. He's put everything under the feet of Jesus. Now that word under, hupo in the Greek, means literally in or into a position below or beneath something. Not simply to be beneath, but to be totally under the power, authority and control of something or someone. The whole of creation is at his disposal and can be requisitioned for our good. That's, I brought this word in because that brings out the fuller meaning. You know, if, if, if a country is at war and it's, in its own, on its own land fighting against an invading nation, the, that country... The army of that country has the power to requisition anything it needs for the sake of winning the war, right? So it could say, for example, okay, uh, that farmhouse there, we're going to requisition that. That's vital to our position and to our situation. That tractor even, we requisition that. That church building, we requisition that. So it comes under the control of the commanding officer for the purpose of the objective of winning the war. Now that's what God does. That's what Jesus does. He can take anything and bring it under his control to serve us and his will for us. He can take a train schedule, okay, and throw it completely out because he knows how that would serve our purpose, one of his people on that train or whatever, you know? Uh, he can take a decision from one of our leaders and say, okay, I'll use that because it would serve the purpose of my people or even one of my people. God can bring anything, requisition anything in this life to bring it under his control to make it serve 
his purpose. That's the meaning. It's under him, it's under him, it's under his power and authority. Interesting that the first prophecy spoke of his feet. And I will put enmity, said God to Satan, between you and the woman and between your seat and her seat. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a wonderful picture of how God works. Satan thought he'd won when Jesus was nailed to the cross. But that was his downfall. That was his defeat. That was his end. Praise God. These are the feet which were nailed to the cross in order to be triumphant in this world. Those nail marks are the sign that God has placed all things under his feet. I love it that um, the nail prints of Jesus are in his hands and in his feet, even in his resurrected, ascended body for our, our sakes, that we might be reminded. The disciples might have thought that he was taking a break in the mountain, but he wasn't. He was praying and all the time was conscious of their needs. Now that's a picture of him going up into the mountain of Jesus' heavenly ministry today. You know, Jesus has two ministries. I think I've shared this with you before. He has two ministries. He has his earthly ministry, which lasted three and a half years. Amen. His earthly life lasted about 33 years, but his earthly ministry lasted three and a half years. But then when that finished, he ascended into heaven and he started his heavenly ministry. That's been going for 2,000 years nearly. His heavenly ministry. He is the advocate for our righteousness when we sin. This is taking place now. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Asked Paul. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? The reason he says that is because all judgment has been given to the Son. He's the only one that can condemn. But then he says it is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. So when a charge is brought against us, Jesus intercedes for us. He bears witness to our righteousness on the basis of his finished work. And therefore God justifies us, declares us to be righteous. John says this, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate is covered. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. This is his heavenly ministry. He is ministering to our righteousness in heaven before the Father. Also, he gives aid, he gives help to those who are tempted and tested. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people for. In that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He has gone through everything, every kind of trial, temptation, test that you and I have gone through successfully. And he's able to bring grace into our situation, appropriate to our need at that time. 
He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yeah, he's in the mountain. We can't see him. The, the, the just shall live by faith now. But don't think he's absent. Don't think he's not aware of what's going on. He's totally aware. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Praise God. So we finish with these words. What's the point of having a saviour who walks on water if we do not follow his footsteps? What I mean is we are in Christ. We are in Christ. He has incorporated us into his victory and we have his authority. We don't yet see all things put under him. That's when he, you know, will come and reign over this earth and the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. But we're not going to be like the Jews and want to come and take him now as make him king. God's unfolding his plan and his purpose. And there's a reason why he has not yet put all things under him. What is that? Because God wants us to learn to experience all things under our feet. God wants us to succeed where Adam failed. Amen. God wants us to experience the victory that was purchased for us at Calvary and through the resurrection and, and to walk in that victory. And so we read, for example, in Romans 16, verse 20, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. What does that mean? If you look at the context, Paul is saying just a couple of verses before, mark those who uh, cause divisions, and avoid them. And he said, of course, divisions are contrary to the doctrine you've received. So Satan throw, throwing everything at the church, and always done that to try to bring us down. And every generation needs to stand. You know, the Bible says all we've got to do is stand in the armor of God. Amen? Stand. So when, when the enemy tries to bring division or, or um, error, false teaching into the church, We've got to stand. Now, sometimes when we do that, it seems like we're in the minority. It seems like no one is listening to us even. Uh, but that's okay because truth will prevail in the end. God will bruise Satan under your feet shortly. He just wants you to stand to experience this victory that Jesus accomplished, bringing all things under his feet because we are his body. And so as we walk in that victory, we the guarantee, the promise is that God of Peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. God will ultimately vindicate and uphold the truth. Praise God. Now let me just close with this, just another little picture as we finish up, because I think this is a picture of eternal security as well. Remember, he told them to go before him and they would be with him on the other side. Didn't look like it, did it? Didn't look like it. And some people would have us believe that if things are not going well in your walk with the Lord, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it to the other side. He has told us he will see us on the other side. They did cross the lake. And so will you. Because all is under his feet. We are eternally secure. He will come for his ship, the church, in the fourth watch. Just before the dawn of a new day the very end of the night, he will come and immediately will be there. 
Just think about it. God may be calling one of us this year. We could be sitting in church like this and all of a sudden immediately we're there on the other side. Well, we didn't see that coming. <laughs> Nor did we. Amen? But that's how it's going to be. It's going to be that sudden. Immediately, the other side. Praise God. You ready? <laughs> Amen. God is good. It's all under his feet. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the encouragement your word brings to us. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, we just give ourselves afresh to you, our bodies as living sacrifice and our members as instruments of righteousness unto holiness. Pray that you'll continue to work in us and through us in these amazing days in which we're privileged to be living. Lord, we just pr pray that you'll remind us that whatever it is we face, all things are under your feet. That which seems to be over our head, actually it's under your feet. And we thank you that that's for the purpose of the church whom you love so dearly and gave your life for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.